Sketches from Scripture presents. What is discipleship? If you are part of a church, you may have heard the term disciple or discipleship before. But what does it mean? What is a discipleship group? Is being a disciple a strictly Christian thing? What's the difference in being a student and being a disciple? How does one become a disciple? What does it look like? What are our responsibilities? Is it for everyone? How important is it? This four-part series will cover the basics of being a disciple of Christ, what it means to trust and follow Jesus. We'll standardize an extensive vocabulary, envision a fully mature disciple, and talk through the process of growing spiritually as a disciple and parenting others. The information we'll discuss is largely taken from North Boulevard Church of Christ's Discipling Handbook, which can be downloaded for free at northboulevard.com dbs. What is discipleship? What is it? You may hear this word thrown around. Your church and Christian circles, what does it mean? What all does it entail? And the big question that we have is, how do we do it? How do I do it? And I've tried to really make the case that um, how do I disciple? How do I do discipleship? That that is maybe not the right question to ask. It's an appropriate question. It's an expected question. It's a normal question, but it's maybe not the right question to ask. And so uh, we've been looking at some different aspects of discipleship, maybe to get at some better questions. I don't have all the answers to all the questions that you may have about it, but what I think I can do for most of the people watching this is maybe direct you towards some better questions. And from there, you'll be able to discover some things on your own. So we're going to take a look at the discipling handbook. I'm going to do a super speedy review. I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but um, just to kind of catch us up of where we've been, and then we'll get into it tonight. So this is from North Boulevard's Discipling Handbook, which you can find at northboulevard.com slash DBS. And we're looking at growing disciples. How do disciples grow and how do we help disciples grow? And at North Boulevard, one of the ways that we're able to do that is through church planting. So that's why we say growing disciples, planting churches. Alignment means we need the same definitions, we need the same process, and we need the same vision of what mature discipleship looks like. doesn't mean that we have to do everything the same. It just means we need to have some kind of foundational things the same as jumping off points. I said as a staff member when we were putting a lot of these things together, hey, we'll put the rhythm out there and you can dance to it. Maybe not the greatest metaphor to use in the Churches of Christ, but that's okay. But my point was, let us put out a foundation and then you can build on top of that what works for you and with the people in your family and your friends and your workplace or your neighborhood, whoever it is that you are engaging in conversations about scripture. But it's very important for us to be aligned with just basic definitions of what it means to be a disciple, disciple making, discipleship contexts. We need to have some knowledge of a reproducible working discipleship process. That can be modified and adapted per situation, but something where we walk away and go, okay, I have a starting point to kind of know what to do. And then we need to have a picture of what mature discipleship looks like. We said a disciple is not a student. A student learns something. An apprentice, a disciple, 
learns how to do something from someone else. That's what a disciple is. And the thing that a disciple is learning how to do is to follow Jesus, be changed by Jesus, and be committed to the mission of Jesus. They have the head, the heart, and the hands all in the game. And we get really all of that from Jesus's first words to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 4.19, when he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Make a decision to commit your life to being with me and doing what I do and going where I go. I will transform you into someone that goes out and uh, looks for other people, seeks and saves lost people like I do. His last words in the Gospel of Matthew to his disciples are the Great Commission. So basically, in the beginning of Matthew, he says, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. He spends all of the Gospel of Matthew doing it. And then at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, as he's ascending into the sky, he tells his disciples, okay, I did it. Now you go do it. That's essentially very paraphrased uh, Great Commission. And so down at the bottom of page three here, what is disciple making? It just means helping other people trust and follow Jesus. If you can remember that phrase, trust and follow Jesus, if that's the only thing that you remember from this entire four-part series, I think that'll help you a lot because now you've got a rubric, you've got a metric to, to judge anything by, any of your obedience, any of your decision-making, any of your relationships, any of your intentions, you can ask, is this going to help people trust and follow Jesus? And if it is, I'm going to do it with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength for loving God and loving neighbor. And if it's not going to help people trust and follow Jesus, then I'm going to find some other way where I'm not going to do it. So disciple making is about helping people trust and follow Jesus in every aspect of life. Now, there is some very specific, uh, discipleship happens in every aspect of, of life. We looked at that when we talked about the discipleship context, but there's also a very specific idea of discipling someone, sort of one-on-one -on -one or a very small group, two to five people, that transparent uh, group where you're really experiencing discipleship. There's there's um, very specific mentoring going on. Mentoring is not going to happen in a group of 5,000. Mentoring is not going to happen on Sunday morning service with, with 350 people. Mentoring is going to happen at a smaller context. Greater transformation happens in these smaller contexts. And so in those transformative groups, what you're looking for is this discipleship lifestyle, that you're living your life with this discipleship lifestyle, particularly in those discipleship relationships. And so their discipleship lifestyle is centered around father, son, and spirit. Remember, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? It's centered around relationships. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? It's centered around intentionality. So we're going to do these things on purpose. We're going to think about how we're going to do them beforehand. We're not just going to sort of feel our way through it, but we're going to have some intention about what we're doing. We're going to have some strategy, some direction. It's going to be centered around scripture because the word of God never changes. And we can always count on it. If we teach people how to read the Bible and be transformed by it, that's one of the greatest gifts we can give them. Uh, it's going to have journey as part of your discipleship lifestyle, meaning you're going to walk with people. So it's not just relationships where you sort of know people, but it's going to be relationships that go on a journey where there is growth from one place to another place. Remember, Jesus says, I'm going to change you. I'm going to take you from what you are now. I'm going to make you into something else, a fisher of people. And discipleship uh, lifestyle is characterized by multiplication. So if you have all the other things, but you don't have multiplication, you have some really great things going on, but you don't have discipleship because discipleship multiplies. So the, the parable at work here is you know, the parable of the seed sower. 
Why does a seed get sown? So that it will get, get down in the soil, it will break open, it will grow roots, it will grow a plant, and that plant will do what? It'll have fruit. What's in the fruit? More seeds. The whole reason you sow a seed is so that it will grow, produce fruit, and produce more seeds so that they can be planted, it can grow, it can produce fruit, it can produce more seeds, etc., etc. So if there's no multiplication, then there was no point in um, you know doing what you did. In fact, Jesus gives very hard words, as we've discussed in John 15, where he tells the 11 still remaining uh, apostles, after the, the disciples after the Last Supper, he tells them, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Any branches that don't produce fruit are going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. This is some pretty drastic, severe language for the consequences of not having discipleship lifestyle going on in your life. And I don't think that that was language intended just for those 11 men. I think that's um, the, the consequences, the warning for anyone who follows Christ, because all of us who follow Christ follow because of those 11 men, right? Jesus taught those men, those men turn around and they began the church. That church spawned the next churches. Churches like the church in Antioch went out and planted churches all across Mediterranean, across Europe. Uh, we think uh, Thomas went as far as India. We think Paul went as, maybe as far as Spain, possibly. And so um, none of us would be Christian if it weren't for this multiplication from the original source. The original source, of course, is Jesus himself. And Jesus says, any branch that doesn't produce fruit is going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. And we have to believe that if we're following Jesus, if we're disciples of Jesus in the same way that the 11 disciples after the Last Supper were disciples of Jesus, then those words are for us too. And we need to hear that. We need to take that seriously. So multiplication has got to be part of our discipleship lifestyle. Now, you're not going to have a multiplying relationship with every person that you meet, but you are capable of having it when you're in tight, close, intimate, intentional relationship with a small number of people. And so that's why we bring up the discipleship contexts. And we've looked at the very big public context, the smaller social context, which is like a class ministry or a missional community, about 20 to 70 people. The personal context, we actually kind of know everybody. That's life groups, six to 20 people, uh, men and women, families, uh, guys and girls, living life together, experiencing life together. The transparent group, Two to five people, same gender, real vulnerability, deep accountability. This is where transformation thrives in the smallest, uh, the, the next to smallest setting. The smallest setting is the divine discipleship context. This is the Holy Spirit discipling you. This is God's word, scripture discipling you. This is you and God alone uh, in prayer. This is your private disciplines. And you've got to be active in all five of these realms, but that transparent setting is where the mentorship, the intentional mentorship of other people is going to happen. And so at North Boulevard, what we have said is you're out there in the public world. You're going to do that. That's on you. You're divine, that relationship, th those private things, that's on you. The things that we can provide as a church programmatically are our campuses, our life groups, and our D groups, our discipleship groups. And so we want you to have a community, a family, and mentorship. So we want you to be part of a church body. We want you to be part of a smaller family, like a life group or a small ministry. And we want you to have a transparent mentoring discipleship group, uh, some kind of discipling relationships going on. And um, as I mentioned, I think last night, uh, my brother has always said, every Paul needs a Barnabas, a Silas, and a Timothy. You need somebody who is um, 
walking ahead of you to, to kind of bring you along. That's Barnabas. You need a Silas, someone who's working beside you. You need some um, brothers and sisters that are right there next to you in the fight. And then you need some Timothys. You need somebody that you're taking everything that you've learned and entrusting it to them. You'll be amazed what that will do for you when you help someone else grow. It probably will do more for you than it does for them. Any of you who are parents know what I'm talking about because you've experienced that in your own families. The same thing can happen spiritually. It's a great gift. Uh, and if you're missing out on it, um, let's, let's not miss out on it anymore. So uh, you need to get a community, a family, and mentorship. So tonight, as we start to really zero in on what are some things that I can do? Okay, Paul, you've been giving us all these definitions. We, we think we got the definitions down. Disciple is uh, an, a, an apprentice. It's someone who trusts and follows Jesus. Making disciples means we're helping other people trust and follow Jesus. I got the components of the discipleship lifestyle. I understand these discipleship contexts. Uh, I even have been paying attention for the last uh, lesson or so, and I understand how a disciple grows, that as people are spiritually dead without Christ, then they're born again, then they're a spiritual infant, then they're a spiritual child, then they're a spiritual young adult, then they're a spiritual parent. Um, hey, I even get what they need. I even get the fact that um, a spiritual infant needs to be shared with, that, that I need to share my life, share new truths, share new habits. I know that children need connection that they're going to be connected to God, connected to small group, connected to their purpose. I get that young adults need to be trained in ministry to be equipped and, and be provided ministry opportunities and they're released to do ministry on their own and, and, and discover leadership as they become others-centered, God-centered. And I understand that, that a parent is someone that needs to understand what the discipleship process is, be mentored in that, and then be released to disciple on their own. You know, I can read, I can read this. I get the principles. I get the principles. I get the definition. I get the vision. I get the process. I got it, Paul. In this last class, tell me what to do. Now we come back to that first question. Well, yeah, but what do I do, right? Okay, guess what? I'm going to give you some things that you can do. So we're going to talk about some more practical things. There'll still be some theoretical thinking, uh, attitude things tonight, but this will be more practical tonight than any of the three nights previous. So right away, we just go right back to the discipling handbook and we look at what we were just looking at with uh, the discipleship context. And we say, okay, well, you need these three things and you need to model them for other people. And you need to help other people find these three things, community, family, and mentorship. So they need a church body. They need a small group and they need a discipleship group. Uh, what we call them at North Boulevard, you need to be part of one of our campuses. You need to be in a life group and you need to be in a D group, discipleship group. You can use that language. You can use other language. I like it. I think it's really descriptive, but you can call it whatever you want. So get in a church, get in a life group, get in a D group. You need to do that to model for other people. And then you should help someone else who needs to learn how to trust and follow Jesus. That's three things that you can get them in that are going to help them. That's not the whole thing, but that's one thing that you can do. So the classic way of doing this in American churches has been to follow the American marketing model. And uh, and it can work. It's a it's a it's a way of doing things, and it's a way that we very successfully done some things at North Boulevard. So again, North Boulevard is very big church, okay. But uh, because of that, we have some resources, and so on uh, times like Easter, when all the families in town are looking for something to do with their kids on a Sunday, why in the world would we take advantage of that to tell people about Jesus? So the first year we launched our West Campus, that first Sunday basically was Easter Sunday. 
And we had this huge Easter egg hunt out on the, the property that they rent on Sundays. There's this huge field out there. We were dropping eggs out of helicopters. We figured we'd have, you know, a lot of the neighbors, we, we did a lot of door knocking and went around. We figured we'd have a lot of neighbors. A lot of people from the community showed up. They stopped counting at 3,000 cars. They just stopped counting. They said, well, we can't keep up with this. I, I think we had like 10,000 people that showed up at this event. Now, a lot of people were there for a lot of different reasons. A lot of people were just there to get candy for their kids. A lot of people were there to as a social event or whatever. But some of those people, we got information on a lot of people. A lot of people came into the church building for different things that were going on in there. There was singing going on and some other stuff, showed some videos. Youth group did some things, did a skit. And people came in and they filled out like a little raffle card or whatever. We had contact information. We followed up. And we have people that have been baptized into Christ and are now members of the West Campus at North Boulevard because they first showed up at that event or because a friend of theirs first showed up at that event. But the way that usually works is you have 10,000 people showing up for an event. Maybe you get a thousand or less of their contact info. And maybe a hundred of those people might show up to visit the church sometime. Maybe 10 of those might stick around. Maybe one of those might get baptized. You see how that's sort of the funnel, the American marketing funnel. And I'm very thankful for the people that have been saved through this model and have been baptized through this model, become part of a church family because of this model. It's really great. And I'm not discrediting that at all. I do have to point out, that's not what Jesus did. So Jesus did go into the synagogues and preach. Jesus did feed the 5,000 and spoke to large groups. Jesus certainly did those things. And so you can make a scriptural case really either way. But the primary way that Jesus did his discipling was in the people that were kind of around him, he selected a small group. And even out of that group of 12, he selected three, Peter, James, and John, to really pour into, to really take on uh, to difficult places like the transfiguration, the prayer in the garden, certain healings and things like that. So Jesus really selected a small group to really be intentional with and to really spend his time with. So, um, and, and then he sent them out to, to grow the church so that in Acts 2, now you have these thousands of people that are being baptized. So Jesus almost kind of does it the opposite way where he selects, you know, remember Peter, James, and John, these were the first guys that he calls. He calls them out first and then he calls the rest of them. And then there's a large group that gathers. Jesus kind of goes the other way. So consider this with your discipling. A lot of us evangelize by inviting people to church. Okay. Now I'm going to tell you a story and it's a little controversial of a story. I'm not recommending you do this. I'm not saying it was right for this guy to have done. This is a guy that I know. I, I call him a friend. We found out like maybe twice. This is something that he did that provides a point that I want to share. I'm not saying do this. I'm not saying what he did is right. Okay. I'm just saying, listen to this story and get the point from it. Okay. So he had some guys that were coming from a church. They were coming to my friend, Justin. They were going to ask him about, you know, how do we evangelize with people? You're real good at this. How do we do this? So he gave them some homework. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the gay nightclub in Nashville on a, on a weekend. I just want you to go there and I just want you to sit for an hour and then come back and tell me what it was like. So most of them say, no way, not doing it, not even setting foot in that place, probably maybe the right decision. But a small group of them said, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. I think that'll be good research for us to do. So they go, they sit there and they come back. And he said, tell me, tell me how it was for you. And they said, well, it was super uncomfortable. I didn't want to be there. And everyone else was there for a different reason than I was there. And they didn't know that. They thought I was there for the reason that they were there. Uh, every time someone came up and spoke to me, especially if they were being nice, I always wondered what their ulterior motive was. 
everyone was dressed really weird. The music was really strange. Nothing that I listened to, nothing that I want to listen to. And I just was really super uncomfortable and uh, my values were different than theirs. I just didn't have anything in common with these people. And I just wanted to get out of there. And Justin said, okay, what do you think lost people think when they come to your church? So again, I'm not saying this was an appropriate thing to have done. Or I'm not recommending it or anything like that. I'm saying, take the point, take it as a parable. As difficult as it would be for us to spend time in worldly places, when we invite people in the world to church, imagine what their experience is. They don't know any of the songs. They can't sing along. Uh, a lot of us that go to churches of Christ where they're singing a cappella, that's kind of a strange thing to them. They don't know what to think about that. A lot of them like it, but it's certainly not what they're listening to in their car most of the time, right? Everybody's dressed, you know, in their Sunday clothes and maybe they don't have any Sunday clothes that, you know, they feel like they look different from everybody else. Everyone's being real nice and they don't know why they feel like they're going to get asked for money or something. They're just really, it's not their home territory and they're really on the defensive and they're really awkward and they're really uncomfortable. I think this is probably why increasingly as time has gone on, why inviting people to church is not always successful. I'm not saying it's not successful. It can be very successful. It can be, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying there might be a better way. Consider an alternative. Consider instead, what if this person that you wanted to invite to church, what if you invited them to your home for dinner? And what if you invited them to coffee once a week before work on Tuesdays, 6 a.m., let's meet at Panera Bread every Tuesday, and we'll talk, we'll um, read some Bible, and you can tell me what you think about it. Um, sometimes it might take somebody getting to a desperate place in their life to be willing to read some Bible, but maybe they'd be glad to hang out with you for a little bit. I have some people in my life that I think are very against the Bible, but I think they might read it with me because I've spent time with them and I've, I've built friendships and relationships with them. And that's something that I hope to do when I'm able to get back home and, and see them again. So uh, while we've come at it from this sort of funnel model, which is a working model, it works well and many people do it well. Consider the fact that Jesus kind of did it the other way, where he started with a small group of people and then a little bit bigger group and then a little bit bigger group. Again, look at Luke 9 and 10, where he sends out the 12. And then in Luke 10, he sends out 72. Okay, he's expanded the number of people that he's sending out on mission. It's growing, not funneling down into something. Does that make sense? So uh, you might even think of it in sort of like an hourglass shape. Hey, let's bring a bunch of people in so that we'll have some more resources. And then we can send the, the people who are really committed, who are really trusting and following Jesus. We'll send them out to go out and build personal relationships with people. But ultimately, if we are disciples of Jesus, if we are following, if we are trusting and following Jesus, which we committed to when we were baptized. We didn't just do that so we'd be forgiven from sins. We did that so we'd be forgiven from our sins and that we would receive the gift, which is the Holy Spirit, that we would receive the same thing that Jesus had, this connection with God so that we would be on mission, on mission for him. We did it so we could put our hope, put our faith in Christ, trust and follow him. So if we're trusting and following Jesus, then we're sort of held to the same commands and expectations of making disciples that the 11 disciples we're commissioned with. That isn't just for them. It's for us also. So uh, going back to the, um, the handbook. So one of the number one things that we can do is make sure that people have these three things, a church, a small group, and a discipling group. But what I'm recommending is rather than starting with inviting them to church, 
start with inviting them into a discipling group. Just start with meeting with them one-on-one. Start with uh, you and maybe another friend from church, the three of you getting together uh, and reading some scripture together over coffee or breakfast or something once a week. A lot of you are retired and can do this at any time, but even people that are um, that have jobs are able to do this before work or maybe on a lunch break. I've had friends that have done it in the break room, they're teachers, and they, and they have a little Bible study that gets together at lunch. They don't proselytize to other people, and they don't cause problems for their school and that sort of thing, but they have some people that um, they get together and they read together at lunch, and they do a discovery Bible study, or sometimes people will meet up at the coffee shop after work or on Saturday or Sunday afternoon. Um, a lot of people will do their discipling groups on Wednesday evenings rather than doing like the another another Sunday night sermon. They'll instead they'll take their church to the street and they'll go meet with people and have either a small group or have discipling group on on Sunday evening rather than having a, a, a second a big church service. So that's the main thing that I want you to, to think about in helping somebody connect with the community, a family and with mentorship is turn it on its head rather than inviting them to church, invite them to. Invite them to Jesus through you. So don't invite them to Jesus through the church. Invite them to Jesus through you. That means you're going to have to model Jesus for them. It means you're going to be more responsible than you have been. But uh, pretty much everyone that I see that is listening to this is more than capable of modeling Christ and has done it for most of their life. So uh, let's go on now with some of the rest of the things that are in here. So you've seen a little bit of how a disciple grows, what to do with someone that's at each of those stages. I know we've really kind of glossed over that particular part of it, but that's the thing that you can really read when you download the PDF. And uh, that's, um, if you want to know more about this in depth, the finer, um, the fine uh, print down here is uh, the, the credit, where we get this circle from, where we get this chart from, the discipleship wheel, we usually call it. And it's from the Real Life Discipleship Training Manual. And it's by the guys at Real Life Church in Post Falls, Idaho. And they are a restoration movement background church. Real Life Discipleship Training Manual is a 12-week workbook. And there's like five days of homework. It doesn't take long, 20 minutes, something like that. But it's five days a week of homework. And then on the sixth day, you get together and discuss it in your small group setting. And then on the seventh day, you rest, of course. So it's a serious workbook. I recommend church staffs go through it. I recommend elderships go through it. I recommend any, uh, all the small group leaders go through it. Anyone that's ready to very intentionally disciple people or lead a discipleship movement at their church or something like that should go through the real life discipleship training manual. It's 12 weeks. You begin learning things right out of the gates. A lot of the things that we've been talking about here, it's just much more in depth and it does it in such a way that I promise You'll never forget it, okay? So if you want to learn more about the, the details of the share, connect, minister, disciple um, process, discipleship process, then get the Real Life Discipleship Training Manual, and you can go through that more in depth. I want to move on through the rest of the pages in the book so that we can at least kind of cover the whole thing uh, before our time is up tonight. We only got a few minutes left. So this page here that says a mature disciple, this is just what does mature discipleship look like? And what's really interesting is that the the milestones that you reach as you follow Jesus, there is a daily aspect of that same thing that happens for the rest of your life. So, okay, what, what does that mean? All right. So when you first become a disciple of 
Christ, when you first decide to trust and follow Jesus, how do you do that? Well, you commit to repentance and you're baptized, right? Acts 2.38, right? So what you do is you go through a conversion. You have a conversion experience. You are converting from the old life to the new life, okay? In the same way that, you know, you have cables and you have a converter to convert it from one thing to another. That's what a conversion experience is. You say, I, I was this, now I'm going to be this. Jesus, that's why he uses the term born again. Pretend you've never heard the phrase born again before. We hear that a lot in the South and sometimes it's kind of a pejorative, right? But pretend you've never heard it before and you're hearing Jesus talk about it for the first time. He's saying you need a change in your life so radical it's like going from inside the womb to outside the womb. Imagine being inside the womb and thinking, this is life. Then suddenly you're born and how different life is, except that's real life. In the womb, that wasn't real life, but out of the womb, that's the real life. And that's what Jesus is saying when he uses the term born again. He's saying you need a change that is so radical, it's like going from in the womb to out of the womb. You need to go from lostness and be converted, be born into something anew, something higher, something again. You need to be born into what is real life, a spiritual life. Now, you make that decision when you first decide to trust and follow Jesus. You are baptized as a marker of that decision, as a, as a display of that decision. If baptism is sort of the wedding ceremony where this, this conversion happens, right? Where the gift of the Holy Spirit is given, the sins are washed away. Okay. What happens the next day after your baptism? Don't you also that day have to decide, I'm going to leave the old life I had and I'm going to continue converting. I'm going to continue growing. We, we call this sanctification. We call it spiritual uh, formation. We call it spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. Call it whatever you want. Every day, we're still growing. We're still changing. We're still converting, right? And so we don't get baptized again every day, right? But we still have to make that commitment again. So you have a milestone event, which is the repentance and the baptism. That's the conversion. But then you have to continue in that conversion every day. So as we look at this page of what it means to be a mature disciple, what we see is those milestone events also are the qualities that we end up having in our life. So the first one is to surrender to Christ, be born into a new life. You're done this when you have an authentic conversion experience at the very beginning, but then you do this daily as you surrender to Christ daily. Live right with God and with people. As you become a spiritual child, you'll develop new habits based on the scripture that you're reading, and you'll learn to commit to a righteous and holy living, and you'll change some of your behaviors, and you'll change some of the way that you treat people. You will decide to do this once as you enter into that childhood stage, but you will do it again and for the rest of your life, no matter how many generations of disciples you have coming after you. Every day, you'll submit to Christ's teaching. As a child, you'll be connected with other believers as a spiritual child, Right? You'll be connected with other believers and you'll be connected with a church family and you'll start to be immersed in the life of the church. Now, there's the milestone experience of joining a small group, of joining a church, but every day you live a lifestyle of supporting Christ's people. Uh, young adults are active in ministry, right? You're training to be ministers, spiritual young adults. And so there's a time when you Start becoming active in ministry, and that is a milestone event. But every day of your life, you're serving in Christ's ministry in some way, and even the smallest acts of service and good works. Sharing Christ, making disciples. Yes, you should evangelize, you should door knock, and you should do some of these milestone events where you get up and you, you maybe you preach or you teach a class or you share your testimony with a, a friend or a neighbor. 
Those are milestone events. And the first time you do that, it's a special thing and a big deal. But every day you're sharing Christ through your actions, through your behavior, through your obedience, how you're modeling who Jesus is to others, the way that you attribute uh, his goodness as the reason for the things that you have in your life, the blessings you have in your life. So that's what this page is about. Mature disciple. You'll know you're maturing in Christ when you're surrendering to Christ, submitting to Christ's teachings, supporting Christ's people, serving Christ's ministry, and sharing Christ with others as you make disciples. Okay, person of peace. Uh, this page we'll spend just a couple of minutes on because this is of the pages that remain probably the most important page. The first thing I just want to say is look how much text is crammed into this page. By the way, this is the page that I wrote, no surprise. That's why it's so wordy. But um, I would really encourage you to download the PDF and read this page in detail. And a lot of the information, at least in the top part of this page, is taken from, I believe there's a credit down here at the bottom. Um, there's uh, transforming discipleship, making a few disciples at a time. I think the, the stuff here at the bottom has been taken from Greg Ogden's book. Uh, the stuff here at the top has been taken from one of um, Jerry Trousdale's books. I think it's uh, Miraculous Movements. Uh, oh, yeah, it's right there in the third paragraph. Chapter five of Miraculous Movements, Disciple Maker Jerry Trousdale describes what a person of peace is. So let me explain where we get this language. In Luke 9 and 10, both, Jesus sends the disciples out and says, don't take anything with you. Find somebody and eat what's put in front of you, wear the clothes they give you, that sort of thing. So in the first century, if you went to somebody's house and they had extra, that was somebody who really had been blessed. People just didn't have extra at that time. So to show up and to see that somebody's got extra clothes or uh, extra food for you or an extra place for you to stay, that's a big deal. And really, for the people that were on mission being sent out by Jesus, it was really a sign that God had prepared for their arrival that they would come to a place that had just, just enough extra for them and they would know that, okay, this is a place where God has prepared us to be. Then what Jesus also told both the 12 and the 72 in Luke 10 is when you get there, you're going to heal the sick, you're going to um, encourage the people that are there and you're going to preach the gospel. He gave them some tasks to do and a lot of them were uh, ways to help the people that were there in their times of need. So based on that, Trousdale says a person of peace is, number one, someone God is preparing to receive you. God has already been at work in their life before you get there. And number two, someone who has a need you can meet. It could be a material, physical, or emotional need. So someone that God has been preparing to receive you and someone that has a need that you can meet. That's how you recognize a person of peace. So here's the context for this understanding. I've used the term before in these lessons about being a self-appointed chaplain, okay? So let's say that uh, your family every Saturday morning goes to the same Waffle House. If you do that, you're going to start to get to know the people that work there. And if not, you should start sitting at the low bar. You should start sitting at the high bar. You should start sitting up where you can get to know the names and start to interact rather than everybody looking at their phones and looking at each other. You can actually interact with the people that work there and get to know them. Consider yourself the self-appointed chaplain of this Waffle House. This is now your parish. Okay, the people who come in here, maybe there's other regulars. You can be, they can be part of your parish as well, but you're really going to focus on the people that you're definitely going to see every time you come in there. You're going to learn their names. You're going to learn about their family. When they have need, you're going to know about it. 
right away, there's going to be some charismatic person that you think that's the person. That's the person that I want to be in a Bible study with. That's the person we need at church. That person will reach a whole bunch of other people. Most of the time, that will not be the person that you end up in a study with. Instead, there will be someone else who maybe you didn't consider, but as you get into relationship with them, you will find God has been doing some things in their life. And then you will find they have some needs that really need to be met. Now, the relationship with this person might not be as exciting. This person might not be as charismatic, but isn't that the kind of people that Jesus hung out with? Aren't these the people, didn't people scratch their heads at the kind of people that Jesus hung out with? I mean, remember out of all the people that Jesus could have had lunch with, he, chose, he chooses Zacchaeus, right? And everybody's like, why did, you, why did you choose this guy? And so, Lots of times the, the people who end up being the person of peace might not be the person that you expect or the person that you want. So if I'm honest, when I go into a place and start to meet some people, there's some people I really hit it off with right away. And I think, okay, this is where the bridge is getting built. And usually nothing happens there. But then there'll be other people kind of to the side that one day we just have this conversation and I realize God's doing something in their life and they have a need that somehow I can meet. And when that happens, that's when real discipling relationship begins and you can really start sharing the gospel with them, sharing your life with them. You can ask them to go out for coffee and sit down and, and read Bible together. You can get them in groups of two or three and, and, and you guys can all venture into it together. I've seen it happen a bunch of times. So this idea of the person of peace is super important. So if you want to know what to do, make yourself a self-appointed chaplain of a place and do the job well, be there regularly, know your parish, look for persons of peace, and then Make sure that they get into mentorship, a family, and a community. Okay, let's go through the rest of this uh, manual. Okay, so what else is in here? There's a group covenant here on page 13. It's just a sample. You don't actually have to have people sign things, but a group covenant is good when you're starting a formal small group because it lets everybody know the expectations. I think one thing we do when we start small groups is we say, hey, we're going to meet on Thursdays at seven. Everybody says, great. And then you do that and you do that for a couple months. You maybe do it for a couple of years. And after a while, people kind of get tired and people kind of drop out. Um, sometimes when you invite people into a group and they see that it meets every Thursday, they're thinking, am I committing to every Thursday at seven for the rest of my life? I don't want to commit to that. Right. So lots of times in having a group covenant, one of the things is you have a sunset period. You say, hey, we're just going to meet for six weeks. We, uh, when I developed five coffees in a book, we, we did it around a five week time span of people sitting down together. What normally happens is when people sit down for a small group of, of time, uh, a small time period, like five weeks or six weeks, possibly even four weeks, what they find is, hey, I really like these people and I really like what we're doing and I would like for it to continue. So then you don't continue it indefinitely after that. You just add something on. You say, well, would you like to do something for nine weeks? Would you like to, or, or you do it for a book? Hey, we just did Colossians. That took you know, five weeks, six weeks. Would you like to do Ephesians? It might take us a couple of months. Hey, that's a great idea. Let's do Ephesians. And so you go through that. So having a group covenant uh, shouldn't, you know, you don't want to scare people with it if they're people who are not used to church or something like that. But it, what the main purpose of the group covenant is not to hold anybody's feet to the fire or be a contract or anything like that. It's just to establish the expectations. You know, here's what we're going to do in the group. And here's the expectations of the group. We expect things to be held confidentially and uh, these kinds of things. I have a different group covenant uh, than this one. This is the one that they put in the booklet. If you're interested in the one that I have, just let me know. I'll be happy to send it to you. On the right-hand side, we have discipling practices. These are the things that you should be doing with people that you're in a discipleship relationship with. The four big things above the, the two uh, dark lines there are the things to focus on. 
As you're growing with others, you need to be in some kind of Bible study. We recommend Discovery Bible Study. You need to be in DBS or something like it. Super easy, super reproducible. You don't have to plan anything. You don't have to teach anything. You don't have to know anything. Uh, if you can read English, you can do a Discovery Bible Study. The other people in your group don't even have to be able to read. Uh, Discovery Bible Study is super effective in prisons and in uh, the tribal cultures in Africa where people are not literate. Discovery Bible Study still works because it's just um, so simple. And it's just basically reading the Bible and asking, what is God trying to ask me to do? It's super simple. Um, <clears throat> I did a lesson before the Wandering series called How to Read the Bible. And I talked a little bit about Discovery Bible Study. And so you can go and look at that and find out about that there. The last two pages of this manual, which we'll see, cover Discover Bible Study in depth. Uh, you can go to northboulevard.com slash DBS. There's a seven-minute video that I produced there about how to do Discovery Bible Study. There's the questions of Discovery Bible Study, lots of Discovery Bible Study resources there. Um, this is developed by a group called Final Command. We have links to Final Command sites. So there's plenty of other places to find out about Discovery Bible Study. So I'm not going to go in depth with that tonight. We don't have time anyway. But you need to be doing some kind of Bible study. If you're just getting together and hanging out, that's cool. But if there's no Bible, it's not discipleship. So you need to be in some kind of scriptural study. You don't have to teach. You just got to read it with them. Then uh, there's uh, prayer. You need to be praying together. There needs to be some kind of confession and accountability at some point once those relationships have been developed and reached that stage where you can be vulnerable with each other. And there needs to be encouragement and support. Bible study, prayer, confession and accountability, encouragement and support. If you're doing those four things intentionally, weekly, people are going to grow and transform both the discipler and the disciple, I promise. Uh, the bottom of this page is growing with God. These are the things that you want to do every day. Many of you are doing these things every day anyway, just uh, surrendering, seeking, and serving. And it's uh, just sort of the daily um, fruit of the Spirit, the daily fruit of being a follower of Christ. You can read those things. Uh, my group covenant looks a lot like these group guidelines. In fact, I think a lot of these things may have been taking, taken from that, but um, <clears throat> the only two I really want to hit on deeply, the rest you can read and the rest I think are, are uh, expected and, and self-explanatory, but the idea of no fixing, no rescuing and hyperlinking. I want to talk about those two things. So let's start first with no rescuing. Uh, the temptation in small groups is to have everybody, everybody becomes a teacher in the group, right? And so you talk about your own personal experience and then you preach a little sermon. That's just sort of what we do in small groups. That's fine. So I'm not, nothing wrong with that, but it's not the best practice in discipling groups. So when you are doing rescuing or fixing, here's an example. Someone starts talking about something that's very difficult for them and they get choked up and they start crying. The first things that we want to do are we want to put a hand on them, you know, put, put a hand on their knee or put a hand on their shoulder, their, their, their back, and just let them know, hey, we're here. We're trying to support them. We want to hand them a tissue if they're crying. We think that that is helpful. It actually is not. It actually can stop what is happening. And that's very unhelpful for the person to whom it's happening. Because that means if they're getting emotional about some things, that's some things they really need to get out. And when we touch a person, when we put our hand on them, when we offer them a tissue, we I know we don't think of it this way, but really what we're saying at sort of a primal level is, hey, I see you're uncomfortable. That's making me uncomfortable. Let me give you this tissue so you'll stop being uncomfortable. And then, boy, I'll stop being uncomfortable. 
So really, it ends up being a very selfish act. I know we don't think of it that way. I know in our head, this is, I am serving this person. I am caring about this person. I am loving this person. But actually, in a very small group setting, there's times to comfort people. There's times to give people tissues. There's times to hug people. But in a discipleship group context, when someone is really confessing something, what you must do The most important thing you can do is be quiet and listen and let them say the thing that needs to be said. Let the thing that's happening happen. Then once group is over, then that's the time for consoling and comforting and hugging and crying together and those kinds of things. Okay. But when you go to rescue, what ends up happening is you end the very important thing that's going on. And so you don't want to do that in the group setting. The other idea was no hyperlinking. It was at the bottom of that page. What that means is you may have people in your group that are not familiar with the Bible. A lot of you listening have grown up in church, grown up with the Bible. You understand lots of scripture, you know, lots of Bible stories. When I started reading the the Bible with my friend, I was told you we'll go through the Gospel of John. He's the one that said, uh, yeah, Old Testament, New Testament. What's the difference there? Right away, I realized, wow, I'm dealing with somebody who knows really nothing about what we're reading. And he's got some really basic questions that, frankly, I, I have a hard time answering. They're so basic. And... When, as we were reading Gospel of John, I realized very quickly, I can't refer to what Jesus did back in Matthew, Mark, and Luke because he doesn't know. He's never read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He doesn't know anything about that. I can't go back and talk about Abraham. I can't talk about the Old Covenant. I can't talk about the Israelites. I can't talk about Judah versus Israel, uh, you know, because uh, he doesn't know about any of those things. He doesn't know about the creation. He doesn't know about Isaiah. He doesn't know about any of that. All he knows is the paragraph out of John we just read. So what no hyperlinking means is in your group setting, when you're doing a discovery Bible study, when you're looking at a portion of scripture, don't jump out to other texts of scripture because you may have people in your group that don't understand those other texts. Even if you're in a group of people that do know the Bible, it's best not to do that anyway, because that allows you to focus right on that one text and really focus on obeying what this text says and not uh, trying to dilute it by jumping out to a bunch of other texts. So that's what it means by no hyperlinking. Just above that, it says I statements. Again, that's the purpose of the group is not to talk about other people. Uh, I, I've been really bad in these in these four lessons about not hitting this point hard enough. You begin with self-assessment. So when you have that discipleship wheel, you first ask, where am I on this wheel? What do I need next? Who's who's going to, who can disciple me? Who can I go to to say, hey, will you mentor me? When you look at this stuff, you say, hey, it's, it's my turn to be a parent. Who can I find um, to uh, disciple who's out there that needs me because people that need discipling are probably not looking for a disciple maker. They don't even know that they need it. Why would they look for somebody? So when you're in discovery Bible study, when you're in disciple group setting, you want to use I statements. So you don't want to say, Hey, you ought to do this. You ought to do that. When you read a text, you say, I will do this. I read this text. It convicted me of this and I will do this. It's about self-assessment and uh, self-maturity, self-growth. Everybody else holds you accountable, but it's about discovering what's in the text for yourself. Okay, very quickly, the last few pages. Uh, here is a page on what it means to be a successful leader and sort of the qualities of a successful leader. These last couple of pages here are on discovery Bible study. The eight questions of discovery Bible study. What are you thankful for? What challenges you got going on? Did you do what you said you were going to do from last week? Then you read the text, reread the text, tell the story in your own words. And then ask, uh, what's it say about God? What's it say about people? What am I going to do about it? Who am I going to tell about it? And then the last service question is, um, how can we help with a challenge maybe that you're facing? And the last page of the Discipling Handbook is praying together. And it's just some suggestions and pointers on uh, how to do group prayer and um, what ought to happen when people are praying together. So 
It's been kind of a whirlwind going through these 20 pages, but you can get the PDF and now you can read them on your own. Uh, uh, you may have seen, I've been taking all of these lessons I've been doing, I've been putting up on skidmore.substack.com so that you can go back and re-listen to the audio. If you listen to podcasts on your phone, you can pull up Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify, I think pretty much any podcast thing, and you can search for sketches from scripture and you'll find all the audio for these. And you can go back and listen to these as you look at that 20-page PDF, and I think it will start to make some sense. So when you ask, okay, what do I do? You're going to look for, you're going to make yourself a self-appointed chaplain. You're going to look for persons of peace. You're going to invite them into a small, transformational, transparent group setting, either one-on-one or two, two to five size group, same gender. And you're going to read the Bible with them. That's all you're going to do is read. You don't have to comment on their behavior. You don't have to get them to move out of their girlfriend's house right away. You don't have to do all that stuff. Jesus will take care of those things. Trust Jesus for the transformation. All Jesus has asked you to do is spread the seed. All Jesus has asked you to do is get the people together with his word, is to take the word to the people. If you will sit down with people and read the word with them, God will take care of the rest, I promise. So you're going to make yourself a self-appointed chaplain. You're going to look for persons of peace. You're going to invite people in to a very small group Bible reading thing for a couple of weeks and see where it goes. And you're going to trust God that he's going to do what he said he was going to do. If you want to know what to read, here's my recommendation. Colossians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. As I've said, they're really great for the uh, different quadrants of how a disciple grows. Colossians is really great for spiritual infants. Ephesians is really great for spiritual children. 1 Timothy is really great for the spiritual young adult. And 2 Timothy is really great in talking about spiritual parenthood and discipling. So if you want to know what to do, there it is. One last time, self-appointed chaplain, persons of peace, invite into a discovery Bible study and read Colossians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. You can vary that however it works best for you, however it works with the people that, that, that you're around. But there's a very simple starter pack for discipleship. If you have any questions about it, if you want to uh, know any more, feel free to email me, call me, text me, reach out through uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, however you can get a hold of me. And I will get back with you and I will help you learn to disciple other people. It'll be the greatest joy of your life. So please don't miss out on it for your sake, for their sake and for the sake of Christ. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.